All right, good evening, everyone. We're going to go ahead and begin our Bible study with Nahum chapter 2. Nahum chapter 2. And we'll read uh, this chapter and then we'll have our study on it. <clears throat> Nahum chapter 2, verse 1. It says, The one who scatters has come up against you. Man the fortress, watch the road, strengthen your back, summon all your strength. For the Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob like the splendor of Israel, even though devastators have devastated them and destroyed their vine branches. The shields of his mighty men are colored red. <clears throat> the warriors are dressed in scarlet. The chariots are enveloped in flashing steel when he is prepared to march, and the cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly in the streets. They rush wildly in the, in the squares. Their appearance is like torches. They dash to and fro like lightning flashes. He remembers his nobles. They stumble in their march. They hurry to her wall, and the mantlet is set up. The gates of the rivers are open, and the palace is dissolved. It is fixed. She is stripped. She is carried away. And her handmaids are moaning like the sound of doves beating on their breasts. Though Nineveh was like a pool of water throughout her days, now they are fleeing. Stop, stop, but no one turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold, for there is no limit to the treasure, wealth from every kind of desirable object. She is emptied, yes, she is desolate and waste. Hearts are melting and knees knocking, also anguish is in the whole body, and all their faces are grown pale. Where is the den of lions and the feeding place of the young lions? Where the lion and the lioness and the lion's cub prowled with nothing to disturb them? The lion tore enough for his cubs, killed enough for his lionesses, and filled his lairs with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will burn up her chariots in smoke. A sword will devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the land, and no longer will the voice of your messengers be heard. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask, Lord, for you to lead and guide us tonight, Lord, into all truth and into all wisdom, Lord, that you might uh, help us to rightly divide the word of truth, Lord, to see and to understand, uh, Lord, what it is that you are pronouncing <clears throat> here upon these people, and Lord, how it is that all who live in the same way that they did, who indulge in sin, uh, who practice it, who will not repent and set themselves in opposition against you. Lord, how all of them will come to ruin and destruction. Lord, help us to see these things so that we might uh, flee the wrath to come. Lord, that we might go to Christ as the only source of salvation uh, for those who <clears throat> are in their sin and who are under the judgment of God. So Lord, teach us tonight of our Lord and Savior, of His gospel, and of His great salvation, uh, seen through this judgment that came upon uh, these wicked people. And it is in Christ in that we pray. Amen. Well, we remember that the book of Nahum is devoted to a prediction of the fall of Nineveh. Nineveh, the great city of the Assyrian Empire. So Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire, and the, the king and the royalty there of that great empire. So it is a prediction of the fall of that great city, given for the comfort and consolation of Israel, being that they were one of their chief nemesis during a period of time. Uh, there was a period of time when Nineveh was 
the greatest, the most powerful, over about a 300 year period of time, they were the most powerful empire in the entire world. And they were in close proximity to Israel and to other, the other nations that surrounded them. And they were the, the chief tormentors of all of these countries where they would go out uh, every spring and summer and they would invade these other areas and plunder and pillage and do whatever they liked. And there was nothing that anyone could do about it. And so they had caused great problems, great consternation upon them. We remember even during the days of Hezekiah, they came and had... Uh, laid siege to Jerusalem, uh, and it was only a miracle of the Lord that delivered them uh, from sure destruction there at the hands of the Assyrians. So this is given as a uh, prediction of the judgment that's going to come upon uh, this great city in order to be a comfort to the people of God, right? To those who are being tormented by them, and also as an example for us of the judgment that will come upon all the ungodly if they do not repent, including us. If we will not repent of our sins, then what happened to Nineveh will happen to us as well. Whenever we see God's judgments in the Bible, whether it be a worldwide judgment that took place at the flood, or whether it be more local judgments, whether those are supernatural, like the fall of Sodom and Gomorrah, or whether it be a natural cause, such as the sending of another army or, or another nation to come and to vanquish this one nation. Right? When we see God's judgments poured out upon people, it is a reminder to us that there are consequences to sin and that all will come under judgment, and we must flee the coming wrath of God. And the only way to flee is through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we must be sure and certain, and these things are happening to them, but they're written for our benefit, for an example for us, so that we do not follow in the same pattern of sin as that of Nineveh. Also, it should be uh, taught to nations as well. Right? Nations that live and that <clears throat> conduct themselves the way that Nineveh did, with no regard for life, no regard for morality, no regard for anything that is good and sacred, though they may have a time of dominance and they may have a time of great glory and power, eventually God will judge that nation and He will bring them to ruin and to destruction. And this has happened repeatedly over the course of human history and also in biblical history as well. So chapter 2 now is going to give a prediction of the actual fall of Nineveh, right? So in this chapter, the prophet is giving us a glimpse of what is going to actually take place on the day of their judgment, right? When the Babylonians come and whenever they conquer this great city, what it is going to be like in the city and why this ultimately is going to happen to Nineveh. So let's pick up in verses 1 and 2. 1 and 2 have both a warning and a promise, right? A warning to Nineveh of what's going to happen to them, a declaration of their sure destruction, but then a promise of hope for the people of God, for Israel and for Judah, that God will deliver them and that God uh, will not utterly forsake them, but will bring about His promises to them. So verses 1 and 2, The one who scatters has come up against you. Man the fortress, watch the road, strengthen your back, summon all of your strength. Here, a call for Nineveh to prepare for battle. This is what God is telling them. The one who scatters is coming against you. Yes, Nineveh, you are a mighty nation. Yes, you have been the world superpower for many, many years. Yes, your dynasties and your uh, kingdom have existed for over a thousand years. However, 
there is one who has scattered and he is coming up against you. And this one that is scattering at this time, it is the Babylonian Empire. The Babylonian Empire, which was to the east of Assyria, was a rising superpower. And eventually, when you have two superpowers, what do they ultimately do? They have a big war and they have a big clash and then whoever wins, wins. And now you only have the one superpower. Well, this is what is happening in the ancient Near East as well. And the Babylonians are ones who have scattered, meaning that they have gone up against many other nations and every nation that they have faced, what do they do to them? They scatter them. They destroy them. And so here they are coming up against you, Nineveh. And so God is telling them, man your fortresses. Watch the road, strengthen your back, summon all of your strength. You better get ready for battle because the battle is coming to you. Be ready, be prepared. It's coming to you, but no matter what you do, you're not going to be successful because ultimately it is not Babylon who is against Nineveh, but who is against them? It is the Lord himself and he will scatter them. He will scatter them and bring them down. Even if they man their fortresses, even if they watch their roads, even if they strengthen their back and summon all their strength, nothing that they do will be able to prevail because God is the one who has sent the Babylonians to get judgment against the men of Nineveh. Verse two, the Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob, like the splendor of Israel, even though devastators have devastated them and destroyed their vine and branches. Here, the promise of God toward Israel, toward Israel and toward Judah, that ultimately God will restore them. Nineveh will never be restored. Nineveh will be destroyed and that city and that empire will cease to exist and they will never rise again and they have not risen again to this very day. Yet Israel and Judah, though the Babylonians would also come against them and the Babylonians would lay siege to Jerusalem and they would destroy Jerusalem, yet ultimately God will restore the splendor of Jacob and the splendor of Israel. And this is not because Israel and Jacob are more noble because they're more spiritual, because they're more moral than the Ninevites or the Babylonians. We know at this time that Israel is just as wicked as these other nations. In some regards, they're even worse than them because they have received the oracles of God while these other nations have not. And even though they have the living oracles of God, they reject these things and still walk in the same manner and in the same pattern of the nations. Yet God will restore them. They will be devastated, but they will not be ultimately devastated. God will restore their branches and bring them back into their land and restore their people. And for what reason, right? Why is God committed to doing these things? You will notice Isaiah 37, 33 to 35. Isaiah 37, 33 to 35. It is not because of Israel and because of their goodness and their righteousness that God will do these things. But it is because of God's own faithfulness to His promises. And that God has made a promise to their fathers, and God will never fail to fulfill and to keep His word. Isaiah 37, verse 33 says, Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He will not come to this city or shoot an arrow there, and he will not come before it with shield or throw up a siege ramp against it. By the way that he came, by the same way he will return, and he will not come to this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. 
for the sake of God, His own glory, His own sake, and for the sake of His servant David. And in there, in that term, for His servant David, is a reminder of the promise, ultimately first given to Abraham, but then reaching its culmination in the man David and in his family, in that God has promised to bring a blessing to all the nations through Abraham and through his singular seed, who would also be a descendant of David. God will not ultimately cast Israel off because He has promised Abraham and the fathers and David to bring the Messiah, to bring the Christ through this nation. And until that takes place, God will sustain them, even though they themselves are very Faithless, even though in many regards, again, they are just as wicked and evil as the men of Nineveh and as the men of Babylon, yet God will ultimately restore them. For His own sake, right, when we are faithless, He remains faithful because He cannot deny Himself, and for the sake of His servant David, right, for our good and for our benefit because of the covenant that God has made with them. So they will be restored, and this is a comfort to them. So a promise to Israel and a warning, a threat against Nineveh. Then verses 3 to 12 describe the judgment that is going to come and the peace that will result from this judgment, right? Judgment and peace comes through this war that takes place because Nineveh is a bane on society. They are a threat to everyone. They are the ones that are tormenting people and depriving men of peace. So when they are destroyed, when God brings judgment against them, then it establishes peace for others. And in this, there is descriptions of the battle scenes in Nineveh, right? And it's a very fast pace. It goes from kind of shot to shot to shot to shot, just boom, 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 boom. This is what it's going to be like uh, when it takes place. Let's do three to five first. It says, the shields of his mighty men are colored red. The warriors are dressed in scarlet. The chariots are enveloped in flashing steel when he is prepared to march. And the cypress spears are brandished. Here, this is a description of the Babylonians. What the Babylonians are like as they come marching upon the city. The shields of their mighty men are colored red. Either colored with paint as a way of intimidating the uh, opposing forces or colored red with blood because of all the men that they have slaughtered over the course of their existence. Either way, it's not good. It's a very ominous sign as they are coming. All their warriors are dressed in scarlet, which would again be for intimidation. It's a very uh, magnificent, a very terrifying sight to look out and to see all of these men marching in scarlet, all of their shields colored red in this way. They have chariots that are enveloped in flashing steel and they are marching as one coming to battle. Cypress spears are brandished, right? They have their weapons and they are ready to come and to wage war against the men of Nineveh. This is the picture, this is the description given of the men of Babylon. They are ready to fight. They are prepared, they are a disciplined, they are a collected people, and they have come together, united together, for the purpose of waging war against Nineveh, for their destruction, right, to bring them down. In contrast to that, Nineveh is described in verses 4 and 5, what they are like while the Babylonians are coming, marching upon them. The chariots race madly in the streets. They rush wildly in the, scare, in the squares. Their appearance is like torches. They dash to and fro like lightning flashes. He remembers his nobles. They stumble in their march. 
they hurry to their wall and the mantlet is set up. In contrast to Babylon, that is disciplined, that is prepared, that is ready to fight, Nineveh, on the other hand, is unprepared. They are in complete chaos, complete confusion. There's pandemonium that has broken out within the city as they see and realize what is about to happen. They're rushing to and fro, trying to strengthen their battle lines, trying to get people in place, trying to get their nobles to go to the place where they need to be. They're stumbling here and there. They're running to and fro, trying to prepare for battle, but it's going to be too late for them. It will be too late and they will be destroyed. So you have the one who is ready to fight, who is disciplined and prepared, the other who is not prepared, who has no idea what he's doing, running around in confusion and chaos. Now, why would Nineveh be in such a stupor? Why would they not be ready and prepared? And this is because of their own arrogance. In their arrogance, in their haughtiness, they believe and think they're invincible, that no one would ever dare come to Nineveh, and no one would ever be successful in laying siege to our city and destroying this great and mighty nation. And this has been the downfall of many a nation through the years. It is their arrogance, their hubris, that makes them think that they are invincible, that the very things that they do to other nations could never happen to them. But this is the foolishness of it. You've done it to other nations who were just as mighty as you. Why do you think it cannot happen to you? And in their arrogance, they become complacent. They become fat and happy and sassy. They're undisciplined. They're not the way that they used to be. And then this new nation comes and cuts through them like a hot knife through butter. This is the way it goes. Obadiah chapter 1 verse 3. Obadiah chapter 1 verse 3. This is spoken of Edom, and it's the same issue that is here in Nineveh as well, and it is a common theme throughout human history. Obadiah chapter 1, verse 3, The arrogance of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in the loftiness of your dwelling, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to earth? There, again, it is the arrogance of the heart that deceives men. They are safe, they are secure, they think that they are untouchable, and it is this arrogance, thinking that they will never be brought down, that ultimately leads to their demise, because they let their defenses down. They're not prepared, they're not thinking about these things, so that when it happens to them, it catches them by surprise. They are unprepared and not ready for the coming day of judgment. And this is how it is with the ungodly in all times and all places, ultimately though, on the day of judgment. They're not prepared for it. They're not ready to stand before the Lord because in their arrogance, they think that they will never be brought down. In Revelation chapter 18, Revelation chapter 18, verse 7, <clears throat> Revelation 18, 7 says, To the degree that she glorified herself and lived sensuously, to the same degree give her torment and mourning. For she says in her heart, I sit as queen and I am not a widow and will never see mourning. Here, this is Babylon the Great. Again, a symbol or a depiction of the wicked world. This present world, this wicked world, says I sit as queen and I am not a widow and I will never see mourning. And this is what most men believe. They are deceived into thinking 
that they will never stand before God and face His judgment. But just as Nineveh was deceived, just as Edom was deceived, so men are deceived today. And this is the deception that our flesh wants to come under. And we must fight against it and we must resist it. The idea that there will never be judgment or no day of reckoning regarding sin. Right? We must believe and understand that there is a day of reckoning and we must be ready and prepared for such a day. Then verses 6 to 9. The gates of the river are opened and the palace is dissolved. It is fixed. She is stripped. She is carried away. And her handmaids are moaning like the sound of doves beating on their breast. Here, the fall of the city, the siege of Nineveh, lasted only three months which is a very short amount of time. For such a great city and for such a powerful empire, for the siege of Nineveh to last only a matter of three months was a very short amount of time, a very quick fall that came upon them. And it was an evidence and sign of God's judgment against them. There are other cities that would be sieged for years that it would take to break them and to break into those cities and to bring them to ruin and destruction. But Nineveh's happened in a very short amount of time, a very quick and easy fall at the hands of the Babylonians. In verse 6, he says, The gates of the river are opened and the palace is dissolved. The city of Nineveh was stationed on the Tigris River. This is where it was built. And some of the tributaries of that river actually flowed through the cities. They had a series of dams and gates that controlled the way the water came into the city. And that was a, a great source of benefit and strength for that city. Well, whatever happened, the Babylonians were in somehow in some way able to manipulate those dams and those gates, to dam up those rivers, to build up that water, and then they opened it all up and flooded the city, right? So that the city was flooded and the water was used to bring down their gates, to dissolve their palaces, to give the Babylonians easy access and entrance into the city. This is the way the Babylonians were able to so easily capture the city was by using this water, using the Tigris River against them. That which was a source of their strength became the source of their downfall when they dammed it up and then sent the water in, flooding them and ruining the city. In verse 7, the women are described. Stripped and carried away is what the city is. Her handmaids are moaning like the sound of doves beating their breasts. The women of Nineveh who lived in luxury, they lived in comfort. They were not, uh, they did not know the difficulties of life. They didn't know what it was like to be the women of these other nations that their men would go out and ravage and destroy and enslave and treat with great cruelty. Well, now what has been the source of their comfort and the source of all of their luxury and living, uh, living this high life all of these things now are going to be turned against them. And they will be the ones who experience the ravages of war. They will be the ones who are subjugated to all the horrors and terrors of war. And typically, in terms of men and women, the women are the weaker sex. And when these types of things happen, they suffer more cruelly under the hands of tormentors. Typically, with the men, they're either enslaved or they're just killed. But the women, there's all sorts of horrible things that happened to them when a foreign army invades, uh, invades that city. They do horrible things to the women. 
They are the ones who see their children ripped out of their arms and sold into slavery. They are the ones who are subjected to all sorts of torment and all sorts of abuse that happens at the hands of these wicked men. And these men, they have an axe to grind because Nineveh has been tormenting them as well over the years. And so now you've done it to us and we're going to do it to you as well. So the handmaidens are moaning like the sound of doves and they are beating their breasts. In Deuteronomy 28, 56 to 57, though this is speaking of Israel, its application would apply as well to other nations. That when God's judgment comes, the refined and delicate women, right, the noble women, the women of high standing, that they are going to be subjected to these types of things. Deuteronomy 28:56, the refined and delicate woman among you, who would not venture to set the sole of her foot on the ground for delicateness and refinement, shall be hostile toward the husband she cherishes and toward her son and daughter, and toward her afterbirth, which issues from between her legs, and toward her children whom she bears. For she will eat them secretly, for lack of anything else, during the siege and the distress by which your enemy will oppress you in your towns. So there, the delicate, refined woman who won't even let her foot touch the ground. She's so delicate and so refined. She will be doing things that are unimaginable, right? that are so barbaric and uncivilized because of the judgment of God. And certainly this is what would have happened to the women of Nineveh as well. Verse 8. Though Nineveh was like a pool of water throughout her days, now they are fleeing. Stop, stop. But no one turns back. Nineveh was like a pool of water, right? Many, many people lived there. Many people wanted to go and, and live there because this is the greatest city on the earth. And there would have been many pleasures, many comforts, many things, riches that would be available to them there in the city of Nineveh. But now it's like a pool of water that is running out. And all the people of Nineveh are fleeing. They're running as fast as they can to get away. And the military is telling them to stop, to come back, to fight. And what are they doing? They just keep running, right? No one is going to stop. No one is turning back because no one loves Nineveh, right? They're just running to get away as quickly as they can from the Babylonians. Then verse 9, plunder the silver, plunder the gold. For there is no limit to the treasure, wealth from every kind of desirable object. Nineveh had, through its warfare and through its going out and plundering and exacting tribute from all of these other nations, right? They would go out every year. They would conquer other nations. They would steal their resources, take them back to Nineveh, and then they would uh, put heavy levies and taxes, tributes upon these nations that they would have to pay every year to Nineveh. And if they didn't pay, then they'd come and they'd kill them, or they'd slaughter them, they'd do all sorts of horrible things to them. And over the course of many years, they acquired a great amount of wealth. There was much gold and much silver and great wealth there within the people of Nineveh. That would be passed down from family to family, generational wealth that was there among these people. But all of this wealth is ill-gotten gain because it came through warfare, unjust warfare. It came through theft, 
by going and stealing resources from other nations that did not provoke you to war. They weren't coming and trying to attack them. They were just going out as plunderers, as pirates, going and hoarding whatever they could get, stripping every other nation bare in order to enrich themselves for their own pleasures and for their own comforts. So now, as you have done, it's going to be done to you. People are going to plunder your silver and they're going to take all of your gold. There's a limitless treasure there in Nineveh, wealth from every kind, all of these desirable objects, and now the Babylonians are going to plunder it and they're going to take it back to Babylon. So all of their wealth is going to be transferred to another nation. And this is what happens with ill-gotten gain, right? Ill-gotten gain will not save on the day of wrath and in the day of judgment, but actually it will come against you. And this would make their judgment even greater. Because all their resources, all that they had worked for and stored up, is now being taken away. And it is enriching someone else. Proverbs chapter 10. Proverbs 10.2. Proverbs 10.2. Ill-gotten gains do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. Ill-gotten gain does not profit. Well, that's what their gain was. It was ill-gotten. And it did not profit them. It did not deliver them from death. Right? It was all taken away from them. And then they stood before the Lord. And then also Proverbs 11, verse 4. Proverbs 11, 4. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Right? A man who is rich in the world, but not rich toward God. Right? We have to be rich towards God by having the righteousness of Christ that we receive by faith in Christ. That's what will save us on the day of wrath. It is the righteousness of Christ. But riches will not save. They will not deliver anyone on the day of wrath. And yet most people will spend their whole life trying to gain riches and wealth and give little to no thought to standing before God and getting an interest in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the foolishness of this present world, the deceitfulness of riches that is so prevalent, especially in our own country. Then verses 10 to 12. She is emptied. Yes, she is desolate and waste. Hearts are melting and knees knocking. Also anguish is in the whole body and all their faces are grown pale. Here, the Lord is taunting the city, right? She has been emptied. She is a desolate and a waste. All of their people, their hearts are melting, right? When all of this is happening to them, the horror, the terror, you know, the uncertainty of the future and what is going to happen. Are they going to kill me? What's going to happen to my wife? What's going to happen to my children, right? What's going to happen to my possessions, to my house, right? What's going to happen to me, right? What, what is going to be the end of this great judgment that is coming upon me? So their hearts are melting, their knees are knocking together. They're so scared. Anguish is in the whole body. Their faces are growing pale. All the blood runs out of their faces. And this is at the sight and the wrath of the Babylonians. Now, this is what happens when wicked men face other wicked men who are merely a tool in the hand of the Lord. What will it be like for the ungodly on the day of judgment? who will stand before the Lord of righteousness, who is himself a consuming fire. Right? It'll be worse than this. Right? There will be nothing to hide them from the wrath of God. 
And this is why we must be reconciled to God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Otherwise, our knees will be knocking, right? Our heart will be melting. Anguish will be in our whole body. And all the blood will run from our face. We will be pale as a ghost as we stand before the Lord. And yet this is the fate that awaits many, many a person today. To stand before God and to have God's judgment and His wrath turned against you, right? Many people, they couldn't imagine having to endure what the men of Nineveh endured at the hands of the Babylonians. And yet this is nothing. It is just a, a small sampling of what it will be like on the day of judgment when people stand, when they stand before the Lord. Verse 11, he says, Where is the den of lions? The feeding place of the young lions. <clears throat> Where the lion and the lioness and the lion's cub prowled with nothing to disturb him. The lion tore enough for his cubs, killed enough for his lioness, lionesses, and filled his lairs with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Here, the lion is the king. This is the king of Nineveh and his royal family, his sons, his princes, his wives, right? The lioness. This is the one that he is talking to now. Where is he at, right? Where is the den of lions? Where is the great king of Nineveh? who fed himself and who had all of his prey, who fed his lions and his lioness. Right? There was nothing to disturb them. They tore people limb from limb. They killed all these things, filling their lair with prey and with flesh. And yet he's saying, where is the mighty lion now? He's nowhere to be found because a mightier lion has come and has eaten him, right? Has destroyed him. And now he is nowhere to be found, but has been reduced to nothing. Then verse 13, a word of judgment from the Lord. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will burn up her chariots in smoke. A sword will devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the land, and no longer will the voice of your messengers be heard. Ultimately, everything that they are experiencing is because of this reason. Why has all of this happened to Nineveh? It is because... I am against you, declares the Lord. The Lord is against them. And therefore, any attempt to resist is going to be futile. They will not be successful because they have gone up <clears throat> and made God Himself as their enemy. And He is against them. And they have learned that there is someone above them on the food chain. Right? The lion of Nineveh has discovered in a very hard and difficult way that there is another power, there is another lion that exists that is mightier than he. And as a result, the one who hunted for so many years has now become hunted. And he has been caught and he has been destroyed by the Lord of hosts. And God will make a complete ruin of them because God has set himself against Nineveh because of all of their sin and because of all of their wickedness. Now, <clears throat> a couple of points of application in regards to this. One, I think it's important for us to see and understand that Nineveh is a picture of what we are in our natural state. In the sinful state, we are Nineveh, right? We're no better than they are. And left to our own devices, we would be just as wicked as they are, and we would face the same exact judgment of God that they faced. Ephesians 2, 1-3. Ephesians 2, 1-3. Here, he's speaking of believers 
But in describing them in their natural state, they are dead in their trespasses and sins just like the rest of mankind. And just like the rest of mankind would include what group of people? It would include Nineveh. It would include Babylon. It would include Egypt. It would include Sodom and Gomorrah and all of the wicked nations that have ever existed and still exist on the face of the earth. Ephesians 2, 1. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. We were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest of them. They were children of wrath, and the wrath of God came upon them. And in our natural state, we are no better than they are. Then, what delivered us from this is 2 Corinthians 5.21. 2 Corinthians 5.21 is that Christ became sin for us. <clears throat> and we could say that Christ became Nineveh for our sakes. Right? He became like one who was sinful and wicked in that our sin, which was as evil as Nineveh, was imputed to Christ and then the wrath of God was poured out upon Him. The judgment that He poured out on Nineveh was instead poured out upon His Son. And that is where our deliverance comes from. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. He made Him who knew no sin, being our Lord Jesus Christ. He had no sin in Him. There was no deceit in His mouth, no sin in Christ. Yet He made Him to be sin on our behalf. And He poured out His wrath upon Him. The judgment that was symbolized in the judgment of Nineveh, the ultimate judgment of God, the eternal judgment of God, the second death, that was poured out upon Jesus Christ on the cross. And that is the source of our salvation and of our deliverance. And then finally, we need to see and understand in this and in other places in the Bible, whether we're dealing with Sodom and Gomorrah, whether we're dealing with the wicked world at the flood, whether we're dealing with Egypt or Nineveh or Babylon or Israel, wicked nations are not the ultimate problem that needs to be resolved and needs to be dealt with. <clears throat> because in our own day, there are many wicked nations as well. And yet, oftentimes we think that if this nation or if this person or if this president or if this uh, group of people or this political party, if these things were done away with, then everything would be resolved, everything would be fixed, and we'd have peace on earth and we'd live in a utopia. But Nineveh is destroyed, and then what happens? Babylon rises up, and guess what? The Babylonians, they're just as bad as the men of Nineveh. And then ultimately the Babylonians will be destroyed and the Greeks will rise up and the Greeks are just as wicked as the Babylonians. And then the Greeks will be destroyed and the Romans will be raised up and they're worse than all of them. And it goes from one generation to another of nation after nation after nation. One wicked nation is destroyed, but it's replaced by another wicked nation. And so it is on and on and on throughout human history. Babylon was the solution to Nineveh Yet Babylon itself was just as evil as they were. And we also know that during the time of, Na of Nahum, while Nahum is writing about Nineveh, he is a contemporary with Jeremiah the prophet. And who is Jeremiah writing about? 
He's writing about Israel and Judah, who are themselves just as wicked as the men of Nineveh. And ultimately, God would judge Jerusalem just as He did Nineveh, and the Babylonians would come and do to them what Assyria failed to do. And why did that happen to Jerusalem? What was the source of their problem? It was their sin. It was their sin and their unfaithfulness to God. And this is because behind Nineveh and behind Babylon and behind Jerusalem and Israel are unseen spiritual forces. Sin, death, Satan. These are the lions that ravage mankind. These are the things that need to be destroyed in order for there to be peace between God and man. Doesn't the Bible describe our great adversary, the devil? He is described in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He goes to and fro throughout the earth looking for someone to devour. Just like Nineveh of old, just like his king was described as a lion who would go out looking for nations and cities to devour and to plunder, so the devil is a spiritual adversary who is a lion who is roaming the earth looking for someone to devour, looking to devour the souls of men. And the solution to sin, to death, to Satan is not the destruction of Nineveh. It's not the destruction of Babylon. It's not the destruction of Washington, D.C., as great as that would be. No, or the Democratic Party, okay, or the Republican Party, or Obama, or any of these other people that so plague us in our own present day. What is the only solution to our sin? It is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is His death and His resurrection for the forgiveness of sin. It is the spotless Lamb of God who comes and takes away the sin of the world. It is God's judgment being poured out on His own Son that sets men free from what we could never be set free from through our own works, through our own righteousness, or through any temporal deliverance that happened uh, from one nation to another. It is Christ and Christ alone who can deliver us from sin and death. And that's what we should look to. Though, again, it would be good and fine for the people of Nahum's day to rejoice at the fall of Nineveh because they were a very horrible nation, and they did many, many bad things. And certainly, there's nothing wrong with believers today living in a certain country, rejoicing or being glad that they might have one leader over another. If this one leader is more just, more favorable to the church, is going to do things that are better for society, of course we should be good and grateful and glad for those types of things. But we should never look to those things as our source of hope and as our source of salvation. And yet, so often, this is what the church is tempted to do. To put their hope in men and to put their hope in this present world when it is only Christ who can deliver us. And yes, there may be seasons in which there is more peace or there is more justice or righteousness in the land, but ultimately those seasons will give way to very cruel ruthless, wicked rulers and wicked nations, and they will fall and others will rise up. And it is only Christ who can deliver us from this present evil generation in which we live. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 18. Hebrews 2, 14. says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, 
and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are being tempted. It is only through Christ taking on flesh and blood and dying on the cross. Through His death, He renders powerless Him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and sets free those who were subject to fear of death and to the slavery all of their lives. Only Christ can deliver us, and that is who we should put our hope in, Him and Him alone.